the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The beloved community, resources for activism, uniting mind, heart, and action. I'm John Schock. Today I speak with someone who models activism, intellect, and spirituality, Matthew Fox. Silenced by the Vatican for his views, he left the Catholic priesthood in the early 1980s. Matthew Fox is a theologian and an activist who's written over 25 books. He's introduced to millions of people, Creation Spirituality. His latest book, published in 2016, is called A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. According to Fox, Thomas Merton was assassinated by the CIA. I have spoken to three CIAs over the last 30 years who were there at the time. I said, did you guys kill Thomas Burton? The first one said, I will neither affirm it nor deny it. The second one said, we in the CIA at that time in Southeast Asia were flooded with money. There was absolutely no accountability whatsoever. If even one CIA agent felt Burton was a threat to the country, he could have had him done in with no questions asked. And then the third person I asked um, was this past year after my book came out. I said, uh, did you guys kill Merton? And he said, yes. From Oakland, California, via Skype, welcome Matthew Fox to the beloved community. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. Thomas Merton wrote a letter to you with suggestions of where you should go for your theological education. You reprint that uh, letter in your book, and, and you took him up on it, and you ended up studying in Paris. Uh, my question is, what was your relationship uh, with Thomas Merton, and, and why did you seek his opinion? Well, uh, like many um, young Catholics in the 1950s, I read Merton as a teenager and uh, was uh, moved by him. And, of course, in the 60s, which is when I wrote him in 1967, just the year before he, he was murdered, um, in the 60s, he had become a very uh, prominent uh, figure because, for example, he was the first religious figure in America to come out against the Vietnam War. He beat King to it. And King was a friend of his. In fact, an interesting story that came out in my research was that uh, uh, the, the weekend that, that King was murdered, he had been scheduled to go to Merton's monastery along with Thich Nhat Hanh. The three of them were going to have a joint retreat together at Merton's monastery. But the last minute, King backed out because of the garbage strike uh, march in Memphis, and he chose to do that instead, which was, of course, a very fateful decision. But um, so Merton was just very involved politically and and spiritually. Of course, he had a, a great depth of spirit because of his... Um, contemplative lifestyle there. So anyway, when my Dominican superiors uh, said I, I could go to Europe to get a doctorate in spiritual, I said, great. And uh, I decided to ask Merton about where to go. He said to go to Paris. And it's there that I met my mentor, Pierre Chenu, a wonderful, at that time, 75-year-old French Dominican, who was a founder, really, of liberation theology, because he came out of the worker-priest movement uh, with um, uh, Marxists, uh, unions and so forth after the Second World War. In fact, he was forbidden to teach or preach or write for 12 years by Pope Pius XII because he was so 
socially justice committed. But uh, so Chanu named the creation spiritual tradition for me, and that changed my life and set me on my course. So I can rightly say that all the trouble I've gotten in since I returned from Paris is due to Thomas Merton because he <laughs> sent me there. So this book is kind of a payback. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it's good. my thank you to him. I was going to ask this question at the end, but I'm going to ask it right now because you started off by saying Thomas Merton was murdered. Um, he died young, murdered uh, at the age of 53. But this is the Wikipedia entry for Thomas Merton's death. It says, on December 10th, 1968, Merton was in Bangkok, Thailand, attending an interfaith conference between Catholic and non-Christian monks. While stepping out of his bath, he was accidentally electrocuted by an electric fan. End. That's the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> but you, Matthew Fox, believe that's, that wasn't an accident. What was he doing in Bangkok, and what do you think happened? Well, he, 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 he had just finished giving a talk entitled Karl Marx and Monasticism, which was not the most prudent title for a talk in Southeast Asia in 1968 <laughs> at the height of the Vietnam War, as you may, as you may recognize. Um, he had been getting um, death threats for years uh, from the FBI, and, and they had been then the CIA had tapped his phone and intercepted his mail, just as they did to King. And um, I have spoken to three CIA agents over the last 30 years who were there at the time. I said, did you guys kill Thomas Burton? The first one said, I will neither affirm it nor deny it. The second one said, we in the CIA at that time in Southeast Asia were flooded with money. There was absolutely no accountability whatsoever. If even one CIA agent felt Burton was a threat to the country, he could have had him done in with no questions asked. And um, remember that Merton was the mentor to the Berrigan brothers who went frequently to his monastery for gatherings. And, um, and of course, the FBI were chasing the Berrigan brothers all over America. And uh, so they knew that Merton was the mentor to these um, radical, uh, though nonviolent, um, Catholic priests who went to jail frequently uh, protesting the war in Vietnam and nuclear war in general. And then the third person I asked um, was this past year after my book came out. I said, uh, did you guys kill Merton? And he said, yes. And he said, the last 40 years of my life, I have spent cleansing my soul from what I did in the name of uh, the CIA when I was a young man in Southeast Asia. So I think uh, it's a, a proven deal that Merton was, was murdered. Uh, for one thing, uh, he was there in Bangkok at the height of summer. It was December 10th, that summer in Bangkok. And he arrived the day before. So certainly he had this fan on the day before and it didn't kill him. So what is this? Why did it have this terrible shorten at the next day after he'd given his talk uh, when he stepped out of his shower um, and supposedly plugged the fan in? Now, you and I would not step out of a shower soaked and wet and plug a fan in the wall. And Merton was not... Um, an abstract kind of guy. He was very grounded. So I think it's um, it stretches credibility to think that he stepped out of a shower soaking wet and plugged the fan in, and that's what did it. The, the, clearly, they did see that there was a, a serious short in the um, in the fan. But again, I say he must have used it before uh, he went off to do his talk, and so I think it's very very likely that someone snuck in there when he was speaking and did, uh, did him in that way. Yeah, I, I was something else I read now, I wish I had the source in front of me, but said that the door was actually had been forced open. 
Um, well, that's interesting. I, I had not heard that detail, but that's signif- a very significant detail. Yeah, I don't think there was much in the way. There was no autopsy. I don't think there was much in the way of um, of uh, detector work done on this, actually. They put a body on a plane, a CIA plane, along with um, uh, soldiers who had been killed in the war and flew him to Oakland. And from there on, uh, they moved his body to um, Gethsemane in Kentucky, where his monastery was and where he resides today. His body lies today. And you, you mentioned uh, you talked to somebody just since your book came out who said yes. Were they admitting it yes. personally or were they admitting that the CIA did it? The, the CIA did it. Mm-hmm. Huh. Did he, he didn't say anything more. That's very intriguing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it all adds up. I, I you know, I think anyone with uh, awareness of what was going on at that time in our country. Uh, that was the same year that King was murdered. It was the mm-hmm. same year that Robert Kennedy was murdered. So, um, you know, it, it was not a uh, tranquil time in our history. And that isn't the, certainly the last time that the U.S. government has gone after <laughs> liberation theologians. Well, that is so true. I, I, I lay that out in my book, The Pope's War. I have it all footnoted how uh, the Reagan administration um, uh, three three months after Reagan was inaugurated, there was a meeting in Santa Fe of the National Security Council, and it was like a 10-day meeting or something, and they were asking one question, how could we destroy liberation theology in South America? And they concluded that they couldn't destroy it, but they could split the church. So with that, they went after Pope John Paul II with satchels and satchels of cash uh, to give to solidarity, and in exchange, uh, John Paul II would... Uh, would go after liberation theology in South America, which of course the Vatican did with vengeance. And um, they, they, uh, they deposed, if you will, cardinals and bishops who were on the side of liberation theology, replaced them with Opus Dei, which is of course a profound fascist organization, which has infiltrated profoundly into American uh, power places, CIA, FBI, Supreme Court, in other places, uh, this is the way CIA uh, uh, Opus Dei is, and that too was something that flourished under Pope John Paul II and, and Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, who came after them. So definitely, um, uh, the, the 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 Vatican has been very much um, uh, on the radar of the uh, right wing in America, and the Opus Dei has been a very strong part of that. I wrote a chapter on, on that in my book, The Pope's War also. Of course, this new pope is different, coming from the third world and being quite open to liberation theology. In fact, he's going to be canonizing Oscar Romero, Romero, who of course was murdered. He was despised by the Vatican, Romero was. So it's it's definitely a turnabout, and of course, you can see it in the press, how threatened much of the uh, power structure is in America when this pope comes out against uh, Wall Street's excesses and the very nature of capitalism's excess. And, of course, when he uh, preaches uh, ecology, as he did in his good encyclical Laudate Si. So the, the right wing goes crazy uh, when, when the Vatican is not in, uh, in lockstep with the, uh, with the politics of the uber right in this country 
and Opus Dei is, is a good example of that. And the very bishops and cardinals that were appointed in that 34-year period under John Paul II and Benedict XVI, uh, it's really scary. Uh, many of them are Opus Dei, and Opus Dei is a purely fascist movement. It was started by a fascist priest in Spain in the 1930s, and it hasn't become less fascist over the years, I can tell you. And yet they were really running things uh, under those two papacies, and you can see it. Even And they appointed young. Like here, I live in the Bay Area. The San Francisco Archbishop is Opus Dei, and he's he's in his 50s. He's going to be around here long after jo- after Pope Francis is dead. And the, the bishop in Los Angeles is Opus Dei, and he's in, he's in his young 60s. So, uh, you know, this has been happening under the radar insofar as uh, the, the, the media uh, tends to ignore these, um, these important signs of um, you know, political and religious um, uh, embeddedness that uh, occurred for 34 years under those two popes and that the Catholic Church will be paying for for generations to come. So it's like stacking the Supreme Court. You know, these people are in leadership positions for decades. I'm speaking with uh, Matthew Fox. His latest book is A Way to God, uh, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. The Church, of course, in its various forms, has told us the way to God. Uh, in a nutshell, we're, we're fallen from grace because of original sin. The good news is that uh, we can be redeemed by Christ's sacrifice and then uh, united with God in heaven. And you've been working on a way to God that's quite different. You've written volumes on creation spirituality, and you've paid the price for it in your own career as a Catholic priest and theologian silenced by the Vatican. I want just to catch people up. Uh, if you're in the elevator, how would you contrast creation spirituality with uh, the fall redemption model? of default Christianity? Well, I would say they're mere opposites of each other. Um, Fall redemption theology is very patriarchal, uh, and and, uh, Christian spirituality uh, welcomes the feminist and the divine feminine, along with a healthy masculine and not a patriarchal masculine. Uh, Creation spirituality is, of course, uh, acknowledging the holiness and the sacredness of creation. A good example of that is the struggle going on today up at um, um, a, uh, Rock. What's that called? Uh, Standing Rock. Standing Rock, you see. The whole question there is how sacred is water? That's, mm. that's how the chief of the Standing Rock tribe put it. It's only about the, it's about the sacredness of water. And what is that in opposition to? The sacredness of oil, of oil, uh, prophets. That's what it's in opposition to. So that's the struggle going on uh, at this very moment. And it's always going on. And of course, the whole environmental crisis is because we've lost the sense of the sacredness of creation. And so we've been going willy-nilly for decades, for centuries now uh, in our anthropocentric and what Pope Francis rightly calls our, our narcissistic uh, commitment to to, to human so-called progress at the expense of, of the rest of creation. So um, now the Fall Redemption tradition doesn't acknowledge the sacredness of creation. Uh, uh, um, St. Augustine, who's really the father of that tradition, says that, uh, and he's the one who invented original sin, by the way, in the fourth century. Uh, Jesus never heard of original sin. No Jew has ever heard of original sin. And so um, the tradition of original blessing which is that of creation spirituality, it was, is what is really in the Bible, and it's really um, uh, the Jewish tradition, and therefore Jesus' tradition. So um, 
Chris Petrella is not anti-Semite by any means. It's, it's always trying to recover the the essence of the uh, of the Jewish tradition, and that's what Jesus was doing uh, when he called for compassion, for example. Compassion being in Judaism, the the secret uh, name name for God. So. Um, uh, Chris Petrelli is both mystical and prophetic, and by that I mean it both addresses the need for love and uh, connecting to the whole uh, of um, uh, of the heart, but it also um, is is critical of social injustice, economic, racial, uh, and eco injustice, and and calls us to act uh, and to be uh, critically to think critically about the issues of our time. And so Chris Petrelli is not anti-intellectual, whereas Fall Redemption is anti-intellectual. Uh, for example, the example obvious now is the whole fear of science, the, the ignoring of science when it comes to the environment, for example, or anything else, including the whole subject of homosexuality. That's not a biblical question. It's a scientific question. It's a, it's the Galileo case of our time. Science has spoken that eight or so percent of the human species is going to be gay or lesbian and get over it. Um, we've also counted 464 other species with gay and lesbian populations. So it's, it's integral to nature, though obviously homosexuality is a, is a minority, but it doesn't mean that it's unnatural. In fact, it's unnatural to demand heterosexuality of homosexuals. So um, there are many areas then in which um, these two traditions differ very, very broadly. And the whole tradition, what I've been showing is, is this isn't... Uh, what should I say, a liberal perspective from the 20, 21st century. This is found in the, in the oldest traditions, the, our greatest mystics. For example, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said that Revelation comes in two volumes, the Bible and nature. So there you have it. Nature itself is a, is a source of revelation. But this is completely ignored by those Bible-thumping um, uh, preachers who want to beat you over the head with a book that was, that's only 2,000 years old. And well, nature is 13.8 billion years old. So I think nature has a lot to teach us. And this is why science is so important, because scientists uh, spend their lives trying to discern what are the real facts and the real mysteries uh, in nature. So Chris Petrelli is very partial to incorporating a healthy science into our our worldview. And the whole idea of the cosmic Christ is a wonderful archetype is mirrored in the East with the Buddha nature or in Judaism with the image of God. But the idea that, that all beings contain the Christ, every being is another Christ. Um, that's not how fall redemption sees it. Fall redemption sees only Jesus as, as a Christ, but in Christ spirituality, we are all called to acknowledge the holiness of all being, including every one of us. And with that, uh, dignity comes responsibility. Yeah, and this is important uh, to talk about. Uh, you mentioned this isn't just a 20th century new kind of hippie theology, creation spirituality, <laughs> right? right? I mean, we're it it's goes back age, all the right. way to Amos and Isaiah. It's 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 all the way through, perhaps underground. I don't know if that's the right word, uh -huh. but um, uh, but definitely a part of it. Uh, the church has uh, well condemned people throughout. If it hasn't been able to ignore them, it's condemned them, like uh, Meister <laughs> Eckhart, right? So exactly, and even Thomas exactly. Merton thought that Eckhart uh, was a heretic or outside the Christian tradition at first, and and he himself had to evolve from the fall redemption to a more creation spirituality viewpoint. 
Exactly, exactly. He entered the monastery in 1940, and and uh, he was he himself. It comes through in his autobiography, which was a, a big bestseller in America. Uh, called Seven Story Mountain. He's very dualistic. He's very patriarchal. He's very guilt-ridden and shame-ridden in that autobiography. And then for the first 18 years of his uh, monastic um, uh, uh, life, he was writing in that vein. But in 1958, he met Dr. Suzuki, the uh, Zen master from Japan who brought Zen to North America. And Suzuki really converted him. He said, you must read Thomas, you must read Meister Eckhart, your one Zen thinker of the West. And, um, and, uh, and Merton did that. And it shifted him entirely, 180 degrees. There's, there's a different Merton from 1958 to 1968 when he died. And uh, in those 10 years, he became very uh, much a pioneer in, in uh, opening up to the East. He wrote books on Zen. He wrote books on, on, uh, on uh, Taoism, on Sufism. And he became very ecumenical. And on that last journey uh, to the East, uh, he met the Dalai Lama, who at the time was only 32 years old. They really hit it off. And in fact, the Dalai Lama since has said that Thomas Merton is my spiritual father. And just this past year, uh, the Dalai Lama was asked, uh, do you believe in God? And if so, what kind of God do you believe in? And the Dalai Lama hesitated. And then he said, I believe in the God of Thomas Merton. <laughs> Which I think is a pretty fun endorsement from a, from a Buddhist uh a Buddhist uh, leader of great uh, stature, but um, and and of course uh, Merton also became very close to Thich Nhat Hanh, who in fact nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize after he died. Merton was his last years was writing in his notebook, "Eckhart is my lifeboat." Eckhart is my lifeboat. So Eckhart really converted Merton from being this dualistic, guilt-ridden, fall redemption monk to being a prophetic Christian. And, and who brought together his mysticism and, and uh, passion for justice uh, in the last 10 years of his life. And frankly, I think it cost him his life. So it's really a powerful story. And um, of course, Eckhart has been very important to me too. I've written three books on him. And I think he really is a, a, uh, an amazing um, figure. Uh, for one thing, he is so... Um, Ecumenical, my most recent book on him, I put him in the in in different chapters. I put him in the room with with Thich Nhat Hanh and Buddhism. I put him in the room with Kumar Swami and Hinduism. I put him in the room with Black Elk and indigenous uh, teachers uh, and shamans. I put him in the room with uh, with Adrian Rich and feminist thinkers. I put him in the room with Carl Jung, and Jung said he owes the key to the unconscious to Meister Eckhart. So um, Eckhart is an amazing figure. He's He's, uh, what should I say, endorsed by Hindus and Buddhists and, 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 and Jews who know him, too. I put him in the room with Rabbi Heschel. So uh, Eckhart is amazingly ecumenical, and yet, of course, he comes from the 14th century. But remember, the 14th century is pre-modern, and pre-modern consciousness, uh, this is why I'm so drawn to Native American uh, spirituality and to medieval mystics, because your pre-modern um, uh, thinkers in the West were closer to Native American thinking than our modern thinkers. And the, the core of that is that cosmology and, cre and, and creation, nature, are at the, the heart of their, of their spirituality. And this is so often missed in, in the modern context where everything is um, 
is set up in terms of, of the human and not in terms of the, of the sacredness of the rest of creation. If you are just joining us, this is The Beloved Community. I'm John Shuck. I'm speaking with Matthew Fox. He's the author of A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And I highlighted this passage. Uh, You write that prayer is, uh, quote, a radical response to life, wherein prayer is understood to be both our mystical root response to life, our yes, and our prophetic root response to life, uh, our no. Um, And so this is the mystical and the prophetic coming together. Often they're seen as opposites, right? You're either uh, contemplative or you're active in the world. You're a beer or a doer. Uh, mm-hmm. But you talk about prayer uh, here as as a response to life, as a prophetic aspect of that. In what ways did Merton uh, pray in this sense that you're talking about? Well, of course, he had many years of contemplative practice as a Trappist monk, and Trappists are very strict order. They get up in the middle of the night to uh, chant psalms and so forth, and they um, they try not to talk to each other very much. So the whole sense of, sol- of silence is something they carry through the day and, and night as much as they can. And he himself... Um, um, spent six years uh, pleading with the abbot to give him permission to leave the big monastery and live in a hermitage on the monastery grounds. And finally, he won that argument, and um, he became a, a hermit, if you will, and much, much closer to nature and to the simple life. But again, as we said earlier, he became very prophetic in his last years, uh, not only because he was reaching out to other religions, and in the 1960s, this was very pioneer work, of course, uh, but also because, and of course, he practiced yoga, and he practiced, um, well, he practiced photography as a as a meditation experience, too. And um, But also, as I said, he became very prophetic. He, he not only stood up against the Vietnam War, but when Rachel Carson's came, book came out, Silent Spring, which is acknowledged often as the, 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 the kickoff of the environmental movement, came out in 1962 or 63, uh, she was immediately fired by her science faculty at the university. Uh, and they said she was, uh, quote, an hysterical woman in love with bunnies and trees. Well, Merton, in contrast, wrote, read the book immediately and wrote her a three-page letter praising her to the sky, saying because of her analysis, uh, they were going to cease using DDT on the monastery uh, farm. And that because of her analysis, she, now he understood why the birds were disappearing uh, on the land. Uh, where they lived, because um, when he arrived in 1940, they were everywhere. So, um, so he was uh, uh, out front on the ecology movement also, and um, the women's movement. He was very supportive. He was in a very profound um, correspondence with Rosemary Ruther, who was only 28 year old uh, theologian at the time, a, a fe- Catholic feminist theologian, uh, and uh, he was in, like 50 or 51, and they had this correspondence going for a year, and she was very uh, hard on him, actually. But he was humble enough to listen and to take it, but also to give some feedback himself. But these are examples of the prophetic prayer. And I really I appreciate the, the quote that you uh, offered from my own work, that, yes, I'm trying for my whole life, I've been trying to bring together the, the contemplative and the active, the mystical right. and the prophetic. That, to me, is the, is the dance that we all have to do and that Merton came to the prophetic kind of later in his life, um, and he he was well grounded in the in the in the contemplative. But I think today I meet a lot of young people 
who in a previous era might have been drawn to be monks or nuns. But in this time, they're feeling the need to be in the world and to develop both a contemplative and the prophetic side. And this is not just Catholic people. I meet evangelicals. I meet uh, Protestants who are studying the monastic tradition and people like Thomas Merton to learn more about the contemplative side because that has been undertaught in the Protestant traditions, which after all were birthed in the modern era. And the modern era was very anti-mystical. Uh, it, it doesn't even understand what mysticism is. But these young people are asking these questions. But they feel called to be activists, but they don't want to be superficial activists, what I would call operating just out of the reptilian brain. They want to operate out of something deeper than just an action-reaction response. And that something deeper is the contemplative or mystical side of, of life and of our brains and of our, our, our capacities. Uh, to bring heart and wisdom, not just knowledge, to the struggle. We are recording uh, this conversation just a few days away from the election. It's been uh, pointed out by Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! and and others that not one question uh, was asked in any of the general election debates about climate change. Uh, We learned a lot about Trump's sexual bravado and Clinton's email account, but not much about whether the human species has a future. Um, (laughs) If you could channel him, uh, what do you think Thomas Merton would say about the United States of America and its leadership? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not sure it would be printable. <laughs> but I couldn't agree more with Amy Goodman and said I've, uh, I've used that very phrase in my own lectures, you know, because I noticed it myself without hearing it from someone else because I was watching those debates. Mm-hmm. Not one question about the environment. It just proves Pope Francis's point that our species is in a state of narcissism. We think we're the only ones that count. Well, I'll tell you, I was on a conference in January in Florida on climate change and seas rising. And at that time, uh, the governor of Florida and two presidential candidates from Florida were all three in denial about climate change. All three of them. These are the big shots of the political arena in Florida. Meanwhile, in South Miami, I, I was there, there's six inches of water on the sidewalks. And of course, at this conference, as, as this first speaker was a scientist who got up and showed um, Slides of Florida today, 10 years from now, chop, 20 years from now, chop, chop, 30 years from now, chop, chop, chop. I mean, it's just so obvious Florida is a canary in the mine. Florida is going to be uh, underwater. And it's not just about getting your feet wet. It's about the saltwater invading freshwater wells. And, uh, and also, what do you do with sewage when, uh, when uh, the, the water is higher than the land? So um, it's just appalling. Appalling, appalling. And that's why what's going on at at Standing Rock is so important, because the Native people, of course, from thousands of years of experience, are just reminding us in a nonviolent way that water is more sacred than Wall Street. And that's what's at the bottom of all this. Uh, We have to admit we're living in a capitalist bubble that is bursting and leaking uh, all over the place. And um, the idea that humans uh, are all that count and our little our little um, accounting uh, papers, pages and numbers are all that count. This is obscene. And the Pope has said so in his very important encyclical Laudate Si, which, by the way, was written by one of my students. Eighty uh, percent of it was written by a, a student of mine who went through my master's program in creation spirituality. By the way, I want to mention 
we're starting up a new school. Some students of mine are starting up a new school. It's going to be um, started up in Boulder uh, next spring called the Fox Institute for Creation Spirituality. We'll offer master's degrees, certificates, and doctor of ministry and a doctor of spirituality. And uh, I'm very excited about that. They're going about it in a very sound and professional way. But they'll be using the pedagogy that I developed over 35 years to combine this, what we've been talking about, the mysticism and the prophecy, the contemplation and the action. Uh, that's what this school will be all about. So I'm excited about that, too. Oh, I am excited about that. That's the first I've heard of it. Cause, and then that will be uh, similarly uh, moving, um, uh, taking what you already presented in the University of Creation Spirituality and exactly. going into place. Exactly. Yeah. Using that pedagogy, mm-hmm. some of our faculty, but of course a new generation of faculty as well. And I'll teach in it, too. But um, it's exciting because more and more young people, I, I sense, are being called to what we're talking about, to this um, call to defend Mother Earth. And, yeah. and from all traditions, including no particular religious tradition, atheists have this call as much as believers have this call. So there's a whole opportunity here for us to join hands at this time in history to um, wage this struggle, which is not just about the environment, it's also about our, our institutions, our schools, our religions, our economic system, our political system, all of it needs reinventing today. Creativity is, is uh, as I say, the one thing our species is going for it. And we've got to unleash the creativity and we also have to do our inner work. So we're not just projecting, we're not just working out of anger, but we're actually working out of a deeper and more quiet place uh, that contemplation uh, takes us to. Yeah, and you've used uh, the phrase deep ecumenism, and, and we talked about that just a second ago with Thomas Merton, and I'm going back to that because you mentioned uh, of, of younger people, uh, atheists, whatever, whatever the tradition is, uh, how important that is, um, because it's been, again, so bifurcated between you know religion and secular or whatever. Uh, but uh, Thomas Merton himself saw the connection between his own, his own faith and Buddhism and and there's something deep about that that we're getting in touch with um, beyond the religious labels. Well, that's right. And that's why I prefer to use the word spirituality to mm-hmm. religion. Um, I think uh, that spirituality is a broader term, and it's about what's at the essence of all our religions. And um, it's interesting, in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, who, by the way, was an activist as well as being a, a profound intellectual and, and mystic, um, we know he was an activist because he got condemned three times after he died by the bishops. So he must have been <laughs> doing something interesting. And um, he says the essence of religion is gratitude. That's what religion is all about. The virtue, he calls it, it's part of the virtue of gratitude. So notice he's not saying it's about buildings <laughs> or popes or bishops or schools or radio programs. It's about gratitude. And I think that's really important because that takes us right into spirituality because gratefulness is really the first step of our response to awe and to wonder is gratitude for being here. And I think that science assists with this so much today. For example, just two weeks ago, we heard news from science that we don't live in a world of a hundred or a couple hundred billion galaxies. We live in a world of two trillion galaxies. Now, this is brand new information, but if that's not enough to take the top of your head off, I say, we've been watching too much TV. 
Two trillion galaxies. Think about wow. that. We can't even begin to count all the stars and the planets and all those. So my point is, real religion begins with awe, and awe uh, morphs into reverence, respect, and into gratitude. When you have this gratitude, then you're you're filled. You're full up. Thankfulness um, is is our phrase. Now you can't be. Hate, Hand, half full of things. So that's the real essence, I think, of, of being on this earth. It's being grateful for being part of this journey, 13.8 billion year journey, in a home of two trillion galaxies. You know, how could we ever be bored again? Uh, our, our hearts should be exploding with gratitude, and that should shift our consciousness and our conversations, our, our dialogues and our debates about a creativity that, that has to follow. Um, but we have to do a deeper examination of our own ev- um, capacity for evil as a species. Uh, just uh, a day ago, I got this great quote from Jung. He says, we need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger. We are pitifully aware of it. We know nothing of man, far too little. His psyche should be studied because we are the origin of all coming evil. Now, that that section from Jung parallels perfectly what what Thomas Merton says when he says that uh, in his day, you know, the big technological gee whiz event was getting to the moon. But he he was not on board with all of that. He said, what good is it if we get to the moon? If uh, even ants can fly, we can sail all over the universe, he says. But if we don't deal with human nature and our our capacity for evil and destroying each other, we're just going to be taking this this um, this shadow uh, all over the, the the universe with us. We'll we'll apply it around Venus, he says. Uh, man is a saddest animal, he says. We have to deal with this sadness, our inability to to taste joy, and um, and. Uh, I think that combination of Merton and Jung is very important. We have to deal with the issues of evil. And so, um, like a fellow whom I admire a lot, this Musk Musk fellow who founded uh, an electric car company and all that, but just this last month he was on there talking about going to Mars, going to Mars, going to Mars. No, I don't think it's premature to go to Mars. We're going to take all our wars to Mars with us? Come on, are you kidding me? Why doesn't Silicon Valley and, and his, he put some of his money and others in Silicon Valley, put some money into what Jung and Merton are talking about, which is reexamining the human condition and, and drawing on all our spiritual uh, traditions and techniques from Native American to others to find how we can, we can tame the reptilian brain and the human so that when we do go to other planets, we go as as responsible uh, uh, carriers uh, of the best of humanity and not just bringing more uh, trouble with us at, at great expense. And who's going to pay for all these trips to Mars, too? Yeah. So. Well, bringing war to Mars is a wonderful irony. But yeah, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, but, exactly. but you're, you're exactly <laughs> right, though. The technology is serves the empire and unless and and it uh-huh. serves war uh, and until we move That's beyond right. that all our always our technology will serve all our creativity will end up serving uh, the worst aspect of us unless we have this transformation which really is uh, I, as you've written before uh, we don't have a healthy 
via positiva, a healthy awe. No. And so therefore we don't even no. have a, a, a healthy, healthy absence of the awe too. But exactly. Now here's Merton's words. His, his words are always so good because he's a marvelous uh, wordsmith and poet. What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery. Without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. So that's what I would like to send that sentence plus Jung's to Musk and other Silicon Valley leaders. You know, um, uh, you know, I, I respect a lot of their accomplishments, but also remember this. Every gadget that comes out of Silicon Valley, ISIS gets hold of within a few months and then they use it for whatever they want. This fellow who murdered 50 people at a gay club in in um, in Orlando, he was texting and he was on Facebook while he was machine gunning these people. So clearly gadgets and technology is not going to save the human species. And it was Rabbi Heschel who said this decades ago, just like Merton did. Heschel said humanity will not be saved by more information, but by more appreciation. So that's what I'm talking about. That's what Merton's talking about. And I think we have to shake up the, the liberal establishment to think deeper rather than just coming up with new gadgets that make more money for people who already have enough money. Uh, and, and of course they make headlines. This Mars trip is all over PBS and everything, but I don't see anything on PBS that's really uh, doing that much to examine the issues that Jung and Merton are talking about, about examining the abyss that separates us from ourselves. And as Merton says, this is the most important of all discoveries, and it's the hardest journey. And I, I, you even have to ask, are these other so-called journeys like going to Mars a distraction, a distraction, hmm. because we're afraid to face ourselves, and especially men are afraid to face themselves and find what's, what's really noble inside. So we wanna make these outer journeys that make headlines and, of course, are complicit to the, as you say, the empire and, of course, the empire's media, wh whose bottom line is, of course, making money. Uh, the president of ABC this, this year said, of course, Donald Trump is dangerous to the country, but he's great for our bottom line. That's why they gave him so much extra airtime, uh, free airtime, because he was good for the bottom line. Well, I mean, that's that's almost a confession of treason. He doesn't care what happens to the country as long as he's got a... a his own healthy bottom line. That's, that's obscene. It's not human. It's, it's as immoral as you can get. And these are people sitting on, on the top of our skyscrapers making decisions for us. And of course, buying judges and legislators, making, making the kind of laws that allow Donald Trump to, to go along without paying any income taxes for 18 years. You know, this is why people are angry. This is even why some people are voting for Donald Trump because they're pissed off. Well, I'm pissed off, too, but I don't see Donald Trump as the answer. I thought Bernie Sanders had by far the better conclusions. But an awful lot of um, people in the middle, left and right, don't have a clue what moral outrage is about and say they do not really understand what this election is really trying to teach us, that the moral outrage is out there. Anger matters. And um, those who are real comfortable don't want to see any anger. And um, uh, so that's why it's the lower classes that are... Are, are, are disturbing the peace here, whether from the left or the right. And uh, that's how it's always been. Change comes from the oppressed, not from the oppressor. This is the beloved community, resources for activists.
I'm John Shuck, and I'm speaking with Matthew Fox, author of A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. Let's talk more about moral outrage. How can we use moral outrage creatively? Rather than simply vent and be destructive, how can moral outrage be channeled for transformation? Well, first of all, um, I think we have to be careful of, of bad spiritual teaching that says that anger is a, is a negative thing. Um, again, that's fall redemption teaching. That was Augustine. Whereas Aquinas said, who's in the Christ spiritual tradition, he said, nothing great happens without anger. So anger is this fire that, um, that allows us to persevere in the struggle. And um, moral outrage is found in the third chakra. It's in our gut. And of course, uh, look at it. Most of our education uh, it does not deal with the lower chakras. It, it only deals with thinking from the neck up. It's Descartes saying truth is clear and distinct ideas. Well, it isn't. It's also clear and distinct uh, feeling kicked in your gut because you've experienced injustice or, you know, you can see others who are experiencing injustice. So a part of uh, dealing with uh, anger is to pay more attention to our lower chakras. And that includes our moral outrage of the third chakra, but also our first chakra connection uh, to the to the to the universe and to the earth, because uh, it's about vibration and all things in the universe. Every atom in the universe is vibrating. Uh, It's all making music. So um, that's an invitation to connect to the earth uh, uh, because the first chakra is engaged by dancing. Uh, that's why indigenous people dance when they pray, and that's how you connect to the sacredness of the earth. So we're not going to be dealing with ecology just with our head and with numbers. We also have to reconnect to the sacredness of the earth, and, and, and sacred dance is an example of that. And, of course, our second chakra is our sexuality. I don't think anyone can claim that our, the West has dealt healthily with sexuality. And uh, that's why these stories are now emerging now that we have a woman running for president about the, the, uh, the habitual <laughs> sexual malfeasance, not only, only of a particular a presidential candidate, but of all kinds of power people. Look at Ellie, so who just got fired from Fox News uh, for his abuse of women at the workplace and all these other stories that are coming out. You know, there's a lot more sexism going on than, than, uh, than <laughs> has made the, the, the media clearly, all these stories coming out. So, so the, the, when, when sexuality is not healthy, it becomes one more power trip. So, it's, it's, so abuse of sexuality is, is invariably a power trip. And so it's one more uh, critique we have to make of, of, our, um, of our, the way we live on the earth and the way we're alienated from our own natures. And religions that are a bad job, I think, especially the Christian religion in the West, in, in uh, reminding us of the sacred power of sexuality. The sexuality is a power. It's not something you, you repress. It's not something you forget, on the one hand, but it's also not something you want to abuse. And, of course, the whole pedophile cre- priest uh, story is, is horrible, and especially the cover of it, cover up it by hierarchy. That's the, the worst part of all, is that cover-up, uh, all in the name of the institutional uh, image. So um, all this is now coming coming out today. And, and Jung predicted this about the age of Aquarius. He said that evil would no longer be under the table. It would be above the table. But the question would be, would we have the will uh, to deal with it? 
And I think a lot of these issues are, are arising today. Um, and it's like pus coming out of a sore. You know, it's not pretty, uh, but it's probably a very good thing because we can uh, start talking more frankly about reality now. And again, I think someone like Bernie Sanders has done a great service by naming not just the pus, but also some avenues to, to, for medicine, uh, uh, to apply medicine to, this, uh, to the, the sores that we're all carrying around with us. And I think that, remember that um, Augustine came along in the fourth century at the time that Christianity inherited the empire. So a lot of his theology is kind of a, a manual on how to run an empire in the name of religion. And I think that his repression of sexuality plays a real big role in that and his repression of anger because um, moral outrage, you know, Jesus had moral outrage. He flipped the tables there with the money lenders in the temple. And in fact, scholars today um, tell us that he didn't do it alone. He, he created an action. He had dozens and dozens of helpers doing this. So it was, it was what we would call an action today, an event. Of course, there was no TV to pick it up, <laughs> but, uh, but it was an event and the word got around. This was an event. You don't do this in the temple, but he did it. He, he, uh, he stirred things up there. And of course, it had everything to do with his, his crucifixion, with his, their killing him, because it angered not only the uh, religious establishment, but the political establishment, the, the empire that was in cahoots with the religious establishment. Both, both ends were upset by his, his, what he did by that event. And I think it had everything to do with his, with his death. Yeah, we want to steer our moral outrage. So, and that's where nonviolence comes in. I mean, that's what Gandhi did. It's what King did, isn't it? They they harnessed, they they corralled the moral outrage uh, of the of blacks in the South who've been living long enough with abuse after the war, but also after the Civil War, but also uh, Gandhi uh, dealing with his countrymen, uh, dealing with the abuse of the colonial empire, the uh, the, the English. But they, instead of just letting it turn into more anger and venting, which is kind of Donald Trump's way, just stirring the anger and, and getting scapegoats. And of course, Hitler dealt with that way too. Instead of that, they had a, a purpose. They had a design uh, that was positive about how to organize this anger. So King filling the jails um, and, and marching and doing the sit-ins, all that was dealing with anger in a positive way, in a nonviolent way, not returning violence for violence. And that was his success. That, that was his power. And uh, the same method, of course, uh, he, he, he learned from Gandhi because it worked with Gandhi too. And so I'm that's what we have to do. Yeah, and I'm thinking that's happening now as I'm watching and we're watching. We've mentioned it a couple of times already in North Dakota at Standing Rock. I mean, this could really be a positive movement that uh, unites a lot of people led uh, by Native Americans. Absolutely. And it is doing that. You know, I just wish the press would give it more serious attention. As you say, they're all embroiled in these silly emails and and whatever other silliness keeps coming up in this campaign, I wish I wish Barack Obama would go there, and um, and represent our country and give a very simple talk about the sacredness of water and how we have to balance that against Wall Street profits and and who should be the winner here, and also to apologize, of course, uh, for the 
the way we have mostly treated Indians over the last 500 years, but at the same time to stand with them because, as you say, they are, they are carrying the values that ultimately most of us believe in, and certainly we want them for our children. And, and it's, it could be a great uh, lighting of the environmental um, fire as well because this is an environmental struggle, but it's also a struggle about the sacred. You know, I wrote a book this year on the evil. One of the main points I, I learned from writing it is that the opposite of evil is not the good. The opposite of evil is the sacred. And um, that's what's going on here at Standing Rock, that the, the sacred, and this is not an abstract thing, how sacred is water? Well, I had a Native American teacher, Buck Gosar, who once said to me, you want to know how sacred water is? Go without it for three days. Yeah. Very simple. Just go without it for three days. That's what sacred means, something we can't do without, something that's bigger than us. You know, I didn't make water. Did you make water? Did this, this oil company make water? Do they drink water? Well, why don't they shut up and go without water for three days? That would be a marvelous, nonviolent practice for both sides, the Native people who are protesting and the, the capitalists who are trying to ram this, this uh, oil pipe through. Why don't they all just go without water for three days and then meet and talk about what the future is? for the Missouri River, and what is it, 18 million people who depend on the Missouri River for its water, while this company wants to put um, an oil-bearing pipe underneath the Missouri River. And the, in their own their own uh, hist recent history, these pipes keep bursting all over the place. That's just how humans are, you know, we make mistakes. And, and, and so we should be very careful about making mistakes when it comes to something so radically sacred as water. There we go. I felt like I've I, I've just heard a powerful sermon, and uh, I always feel that way when I read your books and 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 speak with you. Matthew Fox has been my guest. He's the author of of a new book called A Way to God: Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. Uh, Matthew Fox, thank you so much for your work uh, and for this book and for being with me today. Thank you, John. Thank you for your work. I'm glad you have a program like this where we can talk values, things that matter. If you'd like to download or subscribe to podcasts of the beloved community, as well as my weekly program, Progressive Spirit, go to progressivespirit.net. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, I'm John Schott. Be well.